what should we call the housing podcast? Give me shelter two is my current operation operating. <laughs> Could just be give me shelter. Give me shelter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Solving the housing crisis with Alex Shopper. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that's not that's the one good thing is that that's not going to be the name. But okay. if, if you have any ideas, housing what, after dark. Housing like after that. dark. I like that. It's hard to overstate how important the Central Valley is to the past, present, and future of California. The Valley is urban, suburban, and rural California all at once. The Valley is a place where we can truly see the amazing infrastructure and terrifying contradictions that are literally and figuratively built into our state. As someone from Northern California, the center of that center is the Northern San Joaquin, Merced, Stanislaus, and San Joaquin counties. Places like Patterson, Manteca, Lathrop, Los Banos, and Gustine, or the cities of Modesto and Stockton, the 109th and 59th largest cities in America. There is Tracy, home of both my amazing producer and one of today's guests, MPH Policy Director Abram Diaz. In Northern California area code speak, this is the 209, a semi-legendary place known for toughness, amongst other things. Add all these communities together and you find a place with more than one, more than a million and a half people, mostly people of color, living in small unincorporated communities and big cities and sprawling suburbs and everywhere in between. A while back, I was sitting in my yard with Muhammad Alim Eldin, a friend and policy associate at Turner Center, talking about Stockton, where he's from. I don't remember whether it was before or after Muhammad went to work for David Garcia, the Turner Policy Director, who is also from Stockton. But this interesting coincidence led us to start to play the Who Else in California Housing is from the 209 Geography Game. This led us to the aforementioned Nonprofit Housing Association of Northern California's Policy Director, Abram Diaz, and to Melanina Morelos, the California Strategy Senior Program Manager at the Greenlighting Institute. It was clear to both Muhammad and I that having key voices in the next generation of California housing being from who lives there that prepares people to see the full California and perhaps make a more complete and inclusive housing policy. This is the subject of today's debut of the Where We Go From Here podcast edition, Housers from the 209, what we can learn from them, and how housers can all learn by paying more attention to the Central Valley. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, everyone. Um, I'm really excited to have this show finally happening. Uh, thank you, Mohammed, for being the inspiration back in some long ago backyard conversation to, to do this. But welcome, uh, Melanie, David, Abram, Mohammed. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having all of us. Yeah, thanks, Alex. We appreciate it. I wanted to start with the kind of question that Mohammed and I started to chop up in the backyard long ago. You know, I started to notice that more and more folks that I was seeing in positions of influence had come from the 209, from the, the Northern San Joaquin. We started to talk about the question of why this was important. I had a sense that it was important. Is it just some question about representation? Is it something about the 
place where y'all grew up that matters? Like, why does it matter that you all are doing housing policy at the highest level in California? And why don't we start with our folks living up in the 916, and then we'll go to the Turner Center folks. Uh, so I was born and raised in Chase, California, as the first generation son of Mexican immigrants, and I actually grew up painting homes with my dad. So I was quite literally within the housing construction sector working, uh, you know, to build homes in the larger Bay Area and Tracy, California area. Um, and so for me, I really see how the 2NISO representative of a lot of California's housing opportunities and problems. I mean, Tracy in itself is almost the definition of drive until you qualify. Folks who couldn't afford to live in the Bay Area or even the East Bay, like Livermore or Pleasanton, moved just over the Altamont to a place where they could buy a home and maybe raise their family. And so we really, I feel like we lived in and saw what the future of California would look like. These very centralized economic centers, uh, the expanding sprawl around them, super commuters literally living their days, driving back and forth over the freeway to their job. And this wasn't really a California dream that so many folks came here for from other regions, states, or countries. And that's why I think the 209 is so represented here in the housing space and why we play such an important role, because we're living and seeing many of the real world effects of the crisis. And I feel like we saw the warning signs early, the ones that are being felt now in Sacramento, Riverside, Orange County, even across state borders in Las Vegas, uh, Austin, and Dallas, Texas. You know, folks trying to find an affordable place to live with a yard and space for their family, but being forced to move and shift over. So a lot of what we're seeing across the nation's housing crisis can be really pointed to towards the valley. And I think that's a big reason why so many of us are so motivated. I know that's what motivates me and maybe some of the others on the call too. But these examples that we felt perhaps earliest in this space in these suburban areas are being felt across a lot more of the country and the state. And it's that pressure that sort of first sparked my interest. So, Melanie, I know there are aspects of that story that are similar, but are there things that are similar from what Abram said or things that are different? Yeah, I think the Central Valley is a pretty big part of, you know, the state. Uh, Tracy um, is, is certainly a unique community. Um, I've, I think representation here is is something that I, I really want to hone in on. And, and, um, and it really just... Um, you know, paints a better picture of why I'm working in Sacramento and in, in, in this particular space. But um, yeah, I, I had an opportunity to grow up in different communities when I was when I was much younger. Um, I was born in Gilroy and then moved to Los Banos when I was in the second grade. Um, my parents purchased this house, a house in Gilroy for about eighty thousand dollars, I think, in 1980. Um, and then I, with a quick Zillow check, uh, the house just sold for almost a um, million dollars uh, last September. So. Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy what um, a couple decades can do to the housing market, but um, Gilroy and, and Los Banos are, are very different communities. Um, if, if you um, get on the 152 and enter into Los Banos, you're you know greeted with a big cloud of, of uh, polluted air. Um, it's pretty much just like one street of a highway where there's gas stations and Dollar Tree stores and asthma centers, um, all kinds of empty lots with failed businesses, uh, a stopping ground for KB Homes, which is a pretty big single family home development agency out there. So um, I don't think there's much rental housing if, if there is. Um, it, it's certainly not multifamily, right? We're not going to see the same density that we're seeing in the Central Valley as, as we are now more in Gilroy and, and now in Sacramento. But, you know, talk about environmental injustice. That certainly uh, gives me a different perspective on, um, you know, on, on 
different types of redlining and and um, you know pushing some of these communities out. And the and the majority of them are are farmers, they're ag community members. Um, and then you enter Gilroy, which is where my Pam my my parents uh, had business. My dad had a small business there. Um, my mom worked retail, but you know I, I think um, I get really fired up on this issue, but. Um, the, the house that my parents bought for 80 grand um, is below the railroad tracks and it's part of a low income community. And um, there is one affordable housing complex now that exists and it, it's a, a reutilized uh, old cannery. Um, but then, you know, after you enter the rail, you, you cross the railroad tracks, there's beautiful parks, there's a new baseball field, there's roundabouts, there's physical walls separating these neighborhoods separating these single family home neighborhoods. So, you know, redlining still does exist today. Discriminatory practices still exist. And, and it is so apparent and visual and, and it hits you right in the face in Gilroy. So, um, you know, environmental justice issues, um, housing discrimination, you know, I'm lucky to work on these things now um, with the Green Mining Institute and just, you know, um, like this, this issue of, of racial equity that, you know, is, has been so hard to unravel. And, and I think what's important for us to know um, on this call is that, or this podcast, excuse me, for all the listeners out there, um, is that, you know, it, it's important to have representation at the table and we all come from different stories as, as much of you guys are going to hear about it later today. But, um, you know, these different perspectives living in Tracy, painting houses, air pollution, asthma centers, racial discrimination, um, you know, we, we need more people like us at the table to, to push, you know, these narratives and perspectives and, and then run wrap of these, um, you know, zoning practices that um, we're really pushing hard to, to eliminate. No, it's I and, and I'm glad you, you know, I, we talked a little bit when we previously about this relationship between two similar valleys, but yet really different, you know, the Gilroy. And I think a lot about the 707 where, where producer Tracy has also spent some time up in Santa Rosa or down in Salinas and Watsonville, again, other valleys that, where you get this interaction between the Bay and 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 farm workers and 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 ag life that is so important and again a lot of similarities in places but also uh, very different and I think it's also great in, in some ways that we're centering both the rural parts of the valley and then the urban parts. So speaking of which, I think maybe now it's time to to bring in our friends from Turner, David and and Mohammed, um, both of whom come from Stockton which is both a city and a suburb and a rural space kind of somehow all uh, in one. I don't know which one of you wants to go first. Dave, I think Mohammed is trying to signal David that it's the floor is okay. yours. I will, I will take that. <laughs> Thank you, Mohammed. Um, so I think the question was like, why is it important that folks from the Northern part of the San Joaquin Valley are in the housing space at the state level? And I think, I thought a lot about this in regards to housing, but also just kind of other uh, facets of of the state. But there is no California without the Central Valley. That is the, the start and end. There is no Silicon Valley. There is no um, you know a, 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 a Bay Area as we know it today without all of the people in the Central Valley who stand that up and who make that work. That's true from an agriculture perspective. It's true from a general labor perspective. And I think a lot of folks who are really engaged in Sacramento or in the Bay Area, Southern California as well, the, the Valley is an afterthought. But we continue to feel the impacts disproportionately when it comes to housing, when it comes to uh, uh, climate 
change. And um, unfortunately, the Valley is underrepresented when it comes to of, um, political power. And so when we have a lot of conversations, not just around housing, but around all statewide legislative efforts, uh, the Valley is oftentimes not thought of in those terms. It is thought of in terms of getting the votes from the Bay Area and getting the votes from Los Angeles. And that's pretty much it. And if it works in the Valley, great. If not, if there's negative consequences in the Valley, it doesn't matter because those are not the votes that are needed. So, but getting spe specific to the housing question, um, you know, there's tens of thousands of workers every day, even in a virtual workplace environment, are driving over the Altamont Pass to uh, work in the Bay Area, to have the privilege to, um, you know, work on a construction site or, or to clean homes or, or to work blue collar jobs, but can't live in those same communities. And the housing policies that we talk about are oftentimes very specific to trying to get more people to live in those communities, but they're also, I think, a bit blind to the folks who already live in the Central Valley, right, and how to make those those, those lives better and how if we want to um, hit our, our VMT targets and our GHG reduction goals, like what does that mean for the Central Valley? Like we don't, we don't have those conversations, or at least if we do, they're kind of in passing or, or frankly, kind of lip service to the communities that that would benefit. So, so that's why I think having the four of us and, and others, right? It's not just us engaged in all sorts of policy conversations at the state level, whether it's housing or climate or, or transportation, uh, is really critical because there's so much that the valley does for the rest of the state, and the state doesn't reciprocate. Yeah, absolutely, Mohammed. Uh, yeah, Mohammed Al Maldin. Um, I was born in Fresno, lived there for eight years, lived in Bakersfield for two, then moved to Stockton, lived there for eight years. Um, then I went to Sacramento when I was 18 because I knew from when I was really young that there's not a lot of opportunity when it comes to the Central Valley. So I went to community college out there and then my hopes to go to Berkeley, which when I went to high school, didn't even know existed, um, that it was an hour away. Um, I like the school one day and went with a couple of friends to San Francisco and they showed me UC Berkeley and I was like, oh, this is awesome. I should do this. Um, and here I am working for the university. Um, yeah, when we talk about the housing crisis in general, when it comes to the state of California, it's the lack of housing that's built in the coastal cities, but it's also the lack of opportunity that is available in the Central Valley. Um, there's a lot of talks about a uh, um, Cal Poly Stockton or CSU Stockton. Um, this is the most diverse, one of the most diverse cities in the United States, three times the distance to any public institution compared to any other metropolitan area. Um, if they were to build a CSU, it would let people stay within the state of California. And education is really like a center part when it comes to housing, right? Like you have um, Stockton Unified School District, Lodi Unified School District. If your house is in Lodi Unified School District, your housing prices are higher than if they're in Stockton. Or if you want to attract more jobs to the Stockton area, especially like these white collar jobs, you have to have the education system to support it so people can live there with their family. And there was a, it was something that Abram and David and Melanie alluded to is that people are driving from Stockton to work jobs in the Bay Area and they drive fast and it's like three hours each way. And there was a Turner paper that like the people that do this, if they had a job in Stockton, they would make the same amount of money because you just kind of break even with the car costs, the gas, the time, uh, these sort of things. And it really just disconnects families, right? Like 
it's people or communities that take on the burden of uplifting communities around the Bay Area. And we need to like realize that, like families are being disconnected every day. Um, most of my friends growing up didn't like have like their parents there like at the end of the day. And it's like, this is an impact that's happening to us emotionally, mentally, professionally, and we're just depriving such a cornerstone of the state. It's, one of, it's still one of the biggest cities in California, this urban area is often, but we put practically no investment at the state level to um, this area. And that's why I live in Berkeley. I can't work a job like Turner um, at the Turner Center in Stockton, California, and that's an issue. And what kind of representation do people in the Central Valley have when it comes to Sacramento? Uh, or even, even greater than that, the federal level, it's, it's very difficult, right? Like we're the same, Stockton's the same size as Pittsburgh, but no one talks about Stockton the same way they talk about Pittsburgh. Yeah, you know, when you start to look at the numbers of, you know, the size of city, these cities, Stockton, Modesto, Fresno, Baco, like, yeah, we forget just how many people live in the central part of California. Um, yeah, I, mean, I know David mentioned, you know, we think about it in terms of production or what comes out of the Central Valley or the history, but as a kind of lived experience, it seems so, so ignored. Um, and so I want to come, I want to come back. At, we're going to come back to the 209, but like, you know, what, what I, this isn't just a podcast about the 209 or about that place, right? It's about folks from that place going to Sacramento and writing housing, getting engaged in housing policy that will impact everywhere, right? We're, we're going to get to Abram and we'll talk about um, housing on religious lands. You know, these are, this could happen in all 58 counties and hopefully will uh, if SB4 is passed. Um, and so what, I mean, maybe we can go in reverse order. We can go back to Turner and then go to Melanie and we'll end on, on Abram. You know, what, you know, whether it's with the, you know, armed with the knowledge that you have, you all are involved in organizations that are fighting for housing policy, analyzing housing policy, ending up in the LA Times for when housing policy isn't working maybe as well as it should be on the ground. Um, what are some of the things that you all want to see us as a state do, as a larger kind of housing conversation? Uh, you know, and again, these are lessons, maybe these are lessons that came from what you learned back home, or maybe these are lessons that have come um, since you've taken the positions that you have? Yeah. Um, I wish that California had more um, flexibility with the tools that we have to try and solve the housing crisis. I look a lot at other states and what they are doing, and they have the ability to use things like um, uh, uh, property tax incentives to try and get more projects to work with affordability on site. We can't do that in California because of our wonderful tax system that we have. Um, uh, other states have tax increment financing, which California famously got rid of when um, the combination of our former Governor Brown and the courts essentially got rid of redevelopment agencies. Uh, there are limited ways in which we can still use that, but generally it is not a tool available for the production of housing in California anymore. Um, and so in some ways, we have tied our hands behind our backs, either because of voter initiatives 
um, or because of short-sighted policy decisions. And, and as a result, I think, you know, we, we don't have all of the tools that we need to properly address this crisis. And so if we had the political courage uh, to take on these big, uh, big picture things that so they are kind of uh, not necessarily third rails, but they politically are just very difficult. Um, you know, we, we would, we would come out ahead in that respect. I also think California has done a lot of right. Like I look at the arena process and the housing on the process, and that has become a model for other States, right? Like the, the governor of New York is just recently announced that, that they are going to do something similar there. So I think that is very positive. I think what I would love to see coming out of this is, you know, all of these cities are going to zone for so much more housing um, and they're going to go through uh, a SQL process to uh, uh, to um, to approve all of that new zoning. Mm -hmm. Every single project that comes that is compliant to that zoning has to be approved, but it still has to go through a SQL process, even though we already did a SQL process for the zoning. So why can't we align all of those efforts to just save everyone the time of having to go through a fight for every single project, even though the zoning has been approved through the CEQA process that the city initiated? Like, I would love to see that coming out of all of the great work that is being done to meet RENA goals and get um, certified housing elements. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love what I'm saying. And for, if there are any listeners out there that agree in particular with David's first part and actually happen to know a lot about how to redo the fiscal math in the state of California, please reach out. Uh, one of the reasons why I've launched the podcast series is I've quickly realized in year two of the Substack that I'm reaching the limits of my own understanding of this housing thing. And I need to bring in more people who understand more things. And I think one thing that makes the pro property tax and this sort of general fiscal math so hard is that it technically so difficult i mean i have a phd in this stuff and it's like i you know like i vote on things all the time i don't particularly understand there's so few you know there's a lot more when we're having a conversation for instance at least about rena and housing elements it's so easier to you can get 100 people in the room to really understand housing elements but when it comes to how to solve for redevelopment and make the fiscal pie work it's just very hard so i appreciate that and it's like the, it's technically difficult so yeah there are any listeners out there that have things to say about fiscal, maybe joining, if, you know, maybe if David, if you wanted to come back, we could have that conversation. I think it's super important. And obviously I'll come back to the- Yes, just as long as you don't make me do like math live yeah. on the podcast. <laughs> live. What happens when you take this percentage of tax from the city- When we get my, to the my advocates- uh, Yeah, don't worry. Uh, we will, because that's hard. I mean, <laughs> I think we get a lot of, um, one thing that's come up that I want to figure out a way elegantly to talk about uh, on this show is, a big obstacle to a lot of housing reform legislation comes from local jurisdictions, not because they're NIMBY, but because of the they're afraid of the fiscal impacts. It seems really scary in the world. Everybody seems to be fighting over crumbs. Uh, and in the property environment, it's just so hard and it's so hard to pass bond measures. Abram, just sort of like previewing you, you know, the foreshadowing, they call it in the literature. Um, and so, yes, well, we'll have to come back to this. It's a big subject. Um, but now let's go back. Melanie. Um, um, yeah, please don't invite me for this math conversation. Yeah, um, yeah Greenlining green Greenlining has a really important legacy, though, <laughs> in doing the math. So, so. Um, well, yeah, you know, I I, um, I first want to recognize that this housing crisis is, is an intersectional issue of many different connected pieces of the puzzle, right? It's, it's environmental injustice, it's 
um, investment in equitable infrastructure, it's labor issues, it's an affordability crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, I, I think if we're, you know, talking politics, and I, I think David alluded to this a little bit earlier, and, you know, not having enough representation, that's, that's like a strong political hammer in the Central Valley, like we certainly need that. I, I think another piece of this is, you know, not enough home ownership opportunities for, for now renters. I, I think back then, you know, owning a home was sort of the, the American dream, the California dream, but it's just not it's not realistic anymore for um, most, you know, working class, middle income earners, and, and even, you know, uh, folks that earn a little bit more on the higher scale. So, I mean, um, like buying a home for me in Sacramento is a lot of the question right now, maybe in, a, in, in 10 years, and I, I have a good job. I, I don't, you know, um, I, I have a pretty good here, but, you know, again, it's, um, it's, it's a lot tougher for me. I'm, I'm going to be a renter for the foreseeable future. Um, so, uh, you know, and I and I think just here within the Sacramento space, we're all working in different corners of of the housing um, crisis. And you know, it's production. It's you know, we have the the EJ folks on a, on a different corner of the room. You know, we have developers in a different in a different corner as well. So I think you know, recognizing that we're not going to solve this by by just being you know all about production, we're we're also going to be needing to talk about the the rental the rental um, affordability affordability crisis and how those things can work together. Um, and I and I think we're finally moving in that direction. Um, you know, I think we're gonna have a lot of different uh, representation. Again, we're going back to this this um, sort of framing here, but um, how we have more more members that are, are renters. We have more members that are women. Um, we have more more um, you know th th those kind of different experiences that are gonna help drive sort of this this conversation that we're having. But you know, there's there's so many different aspects to this this housing crisis that it, it's it's certainly not gonna be solved if we if we just say it's it's a supply crisis. So. Um, you know, I think uh, the, the work that I do here at Greenlining now is, is trying to like cultivate this like middle, middle in the road um, narrative that we find ourselves in because we're between, you know, production and then environmental justice issues and, you know, those, those things historically haven't necessarily got along. So I'm, I'm lucky to have that experience and in, in growing up in the 209, but, you know, I think it's going to be really helpful for me and, and sort of guiding our own organization and, and the narrative here as we move forward. I, uh, I love that you that you brought in both like two issues that are really important to me, which is home ownership and sort of renters' rights, and trying to not see them as up. That's another middle that you are, I think, carving out. And again, I mean, the two hundred nine is the is the both the geographic middle and actually kind of at the intersection of so many of the forces that have made California that are California. Um, so I don't know if that's one of the secrets that helps you see these middle pathways to try to bring folks together, but it. Uh, it's great, yeah, and I, I, I completely concur. I love seeing homeownership kind of creeping up, and again, especially with the involvement of our friends in the Camille Land Trust movement, and uh, you know, Noni Sessions and Prec, and bringing inspiration, all kinds of like you know, writing her own SEC filing, and with their group, like all the kind of alternative homeownership, which I consider it. Can we get to a point where tenants' rights and homeownership are not at war with each other, but both part of a continuum of protected tenures that work for people? at different points in their life cycle, which is a preview of the next episode of, right now Melanie has recommended podcasts on vinyl as, an, as a candidate name, so maybe it's called, you know. <laughs> um, and so yeah, we, I, we're gonna keep talking about that, but I appreciate that. Now, Abram, I know, I know we're gonna talk about religious lands, and mm -hmm. I know that we're gonna talk about uh, a ballot measure to make yeah. it easier to vote for housing. Did I admit, like, are you going to surprise me with a third thing? Uh, I might, but we'll start with those two for now. Um, 
firstly, I'll just say we're talking about uh, where we love to name frame, where we're going to continue for reform. Um, you know, I, I obviously, I think California as a whole needs a revolution, just a, a big shift in attitude, and one that I believe is currently happening. And one that actually the folks we have on the podcast today are very important in that. I can't say enough as a former legislative staffer how often the legislators I worked for and worked with would turn to Turner Center reports to advance their knowledge and thinking on these. Truly, uh, I, I would oftentimes cite the work out of UC Berkeley for my UC Berkeley alum legislator, Assemblyman Jesse Gabriel, who I worked for, who really enjoyed diving through your work. And also with Melanie on the environmental side, like having those shifts and understanding how housing policy, environmental policy should align well are very helpful to our efforts at a statewide level to address the issues. And so, you know, getting people to yes is really important, statewide and local level. A big part of that is, you know, streamlining us, ensuring that, you know, we were actually able to build these projects a lot faster. We've been underproducing at historic margins for a few years now, and we need to be overproducing if we want to fill these affordable housing and just general housing gaps. We also need accountability, uh, and that comes with you know, the governor's housing accountability unit uh, with local RENA plans and housing element plans. We need to actually make sure that we meet the goals that we've set. And we also need new funding mechanisms, such as David pointed out. And so with that, MPH, uh, the Nonprofit Housing Association of Northern California, is working very closely with statewide partners on a statewide ballot initiative to lower the voter threshold on housing bonds from two-thirds to a simple majority. And so the big idea behind that is we had a fundamental shift in how we funded affordable housing when redevelopment was lost. We need another fundamental shift in how we fund our affordable housing production now. And voters are willing to go there. But, you know, we prefer to be able to go to a Democratic majority rather than a two-thirds supermajority to ask folks if they're willing to pass these bonds to fund these kinds of affordable housing and homeless housing units that we want to see. And so we're embarking on a pretty ambitious effort over the next couple of years to lower the voter threshold and go directly to California's voters and see if they'll meet us halfway. Um, you previewed Senate Bill 4 by Senator Scott Weiner from San Francisco. It's a bill that MPH is very happy to be co-sponsoring and leading on, streamlining the production of fully affordable units on land owned by faith institutions. I have to tell you, this is our third time trying it, but I've never been more hopeful the amount of grassroots supports we've gotten from across the state has been incredibly impressive over the last couple of weeks. We have representatives from across the various denominations. I've got letters from Jewish organizations, Catholic organizations. I have letters of support from the Muslim Public Affairs Council. There's a lot of different folks that see it as their calling to address our affordable housing and homeless crisis. So that's one kind of reform, streamlining on certain kinds of land. I'd like to see that applied more universally, and I got to give a huge shout out to Melanie's former boss, Assemblyman Buffy Wicks, and her great work on Assembly Bill 2011 to streamline production on commercial lands. But those are tools that we're going to need, speeding up the production. We're also going to need the funding if we want to address the affordable side of the equation. And that's something we're all working on now and going to keep working on in the future. So change in attitude, faster production, funding for affordable housing production three really big aspects of the work that we do. And I'm hoping that we'll see a lot of advancements and evolution in those problems uh, over the next decade. I am. Um, yeah, I'm so excited that y'all are, are doing this um, SB4, which I'll come back to. There'll be a whole um, piece on SB4. I'm, 
I'm excited. I'll talk about. I'm personally involved in a in a well, trying to be involved in a major redevelopment of a church site right in the heart of Berkeley uh, that has just so much potential to do so much good, uh, not just to build housing, but also to build dedicated space for social service agencies. I mean, the, these churches and, and religious organizations, and it's great to see my fellow members of the tribe providing some leadership on something I agree with, actually. There's just so much opportunity from a land use. And, and it's, it'll, the only thing that makes me sad is that we're in a down budget year and we can't, it's going to be harder to attach the kind of necessary funding and technical assistance and sort of industry transforming things that we need to. Um, and so that's actually one of the things I think it's, in, I hope that, you know, if we're successful this year, that that coalition can stick together and in what will hopefully be better budget times, really make sure that we're attaching uh, either, you know, it could be plenty of existing funding programs. So just really making sure that it's set up to, to be implemented. Uh, and to succeed. You come from a, a long lineage of really awesome uh, policy director and ledge folks at NPH that have really sweat blood for this issue for a long time and have set it up. And I know that Pedro and Michael and all the various folks are, are rooting for you, and I am too. Thanks for joining us on the podcast edition of my Where We Go From Here Substack, also known as Housing After Dark with Alex Schaffern. I'm thrilled to have you listening, and if you haven't already, please do us a favor and subscribe to the Substack and to the podcast. Words are cheap, but podcasts are not, and if you want to support this work, please consider a paid subscription. You can also give us some love or some likes on social media and help more friends and colleagues dive deep into California housing. And for my readers out there who prefer their words on a page and not in your headphones, you have my promise that podcasts will always be transcribed. With that, I, I, again, I think you've all given us really diverse perspective and obviously all of these things that are, are things that can be really useful and important in back home in the Central Valley, um, in the 209. What are the kind of transformations that you think that need to happen? And again, these could be transformations that you think where the support really needs to come from Sacramento, or maybe there are transformations from back home. The Central Valley has eight counties and has eight MPOs, I believe. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's always really struggled to be unified. You, you know, we talk about the 209, as an, it seems to be a strong identity, but there is no political institution that is the 209. It's just an area code like the five and dime and the 415, except they're all members of ABAG MTC, which has, is like a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar agency with like endless planners and really, you know, heavy hitting machinery. So what are kind of some of the transformations that you would like to see? I'm just going to go with whoever speaks up first. I'll jump in. Um, for me, in in Stockton specifically, but I think these are true of most urban areas in the Central Valley, be it Modesto, Fresno. Um, you know, we see one type of housing being built. It is the large single-family home. That's been true for decades. And I think the challenge that we have is we have these huge ambitious climate goals as a state. Um, and we have, we want to align those with where we're building housing in theory. But we look at the Central Valley and the opposite is happening, right? We are um, creating, a, you know, thousands of new homes in some cases, which on one hand is, is a good thing for supply, but they're being built in a manner that is only going to increase vehicle miles traveled and is really going against what we say we want to do as a state. 
Um, but we seem to turn a blind eye to that to some degree. We require all these, you know, eight or nine MPOs, Alex, as you mentioned, you know, to, to come up with uh, sustainable community strategies and to have a, a housing element that identifies where, you know, more dense multifamily can be built. Um, but then it doesn't get built. So I think the challenge that we have is how do we balance um, the need to, you know, create more housing in the Central Valley but actually incentivize it to be in a manner that we say we would like it to be built in like the Bay Area or in Los Angeles, like along transit lines or in areas where people are not going to drive as much. Because right now, that just doesn't work. Part of my background uh, is working in real estate development in Stockton about seven years ago. And part of the challenge was not that there was a lack of enthusiasm to build new uh, market rate housing in, say, a downtown area, the challenge was the financing and then making it work. Because all for all of the uh, requirements that we put on developers to build new housing, it can work in a lot of places where you can charge pretty high rents, right? You, you can re recover those costs in a place like San Francisco and Oakland, where people uh, and the market can, can bear that. In a place like a Stockton or Fresno or Modesto, you see next to no infill development because the costs are still really high to do that even though you're not in San Francisco and the rents are half if not less um, than what you would get in a, in a comparable ur urban environment and so there is no mechanism to close that gap and I don't know what that could be in the past that was redevelopment if you look at Fresno um, a lot of the development they have in the downtown was supported through redevelopment um, but that doesn't exist anymore. So there is no other financing mechanism to build infill development in the Central Valley um, unless it is 100% affordable projects. And so you actually see a decent amount of that. If you go to downtown Stockton, there's a couple of projects um, that uh, I worked on while I was in Stockton. Um, they're all 9% LIHTC projects, which is great, but that's the only thing you can build there. And so on one hand, we need to be continuing to build that kind of uh, project in places like Stockton. But on the other hand, um, that's the only place that's getting built, right? Because it's not getting built yeah. in like the Brookside, uh, right? Which is like the very affluent uh, country club place in Stockton. Like, so we're kind of concentrating all of our affordable housing in one place. And all the other production is just happening in the periphery, which is, uh, in my opinion, kind of uh, an exclusionary land use pattern. And one that I would say is um, kind of the antithesis of what we, uh, of our values of that that we say we have when we talk about housing in California. So that's Stockton to start. Melanie, Abram, what about Tracy? What about Los Banos? Or again, anything larger? Shout out to my to Marion Canyon and Jesse Roseman and the Modesto crew. And apologies that there's nobody from Stanislaus on this call. We will we will we will rectify that error in the future. Yeah, I want to stoke this um, idea about like defining density for the Central Valley. You know, um, when we talk about density, we're talking about urban communities. We're talking about LA, San Diego, San Francisco, but you know, we we don't talk about what density looks like for the Central Valley communities. Um, I, I'm not sure you, who who is even having that conversation. I'd love to be a part of it if 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 if, if that's something that folks are talking about right now. But I, I think another piece of that is more economic investment in the Central Valley. Um, I, I, something I didn't mention was that I was a commuter um, growing up. So my um, parents commuted me back and forth to my community. It was 45 minutes each way. So we, we you know, went over the 152 twice a day. 
Um, I grew up with multiple new gas-powered vehicles, so if you know we're actually going to start meeting these goals of uh, 2035 elimination of these gas-powered vehicles, we actually also need to provide accessible, equitable transportation infrastructure that um, is going to, you know, one lead to less pollution and um, and and more towards our goals, but also just you know providing this alternative to to, to buying these large trucks or you know in the in these longer commutes. Um, I think it's it's also um, I'm not a water expert, but it, it's also like retention of water um, in the Central Valley. You know to um, you know to ensure that we're doing the right thing when big storms come and, and we can actually capture it. Um, my 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 family when we lived in Los Banos, we had 20 acres of apricots. Um, we lived like on the outskirts. It took us about 15 minutes to get into town, but um, you know we lost all our trees due to the drought. So. You know, now we hadn't seen water. The the San Luis Reservoir was completely empty. You know, emptier every day on my commute. So, you know, economic investment is something that I really want to see um, be a part of this conversation for the Central Valley. I think we need a champion in the Central Valley uh, among these new legislators or or existing ones that are really going to fight for that um, and 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 sort of cultivate this conversation about what gen what density looks like um, for that part of the state. And I, I think in Gilroy, I just I do not want to go. To my hometown and, and see walls and a railroad track and the neighborhood that I grew up in looked exactly the same. And then and then the last thing I'll say um, about Sacramento, um, I live in downtown. I live at a fourplex. I live next to a rail. I have bars and grocery stores and restaurants, you know, out and right as soon as I step outside. Um, but the thing that we're facing in, in Sacramento, the, the largest issue is, is the homelessness population, right? Mm -hmm. I think we've exceeded San, San Francisco's, um, um, you know, in-house population. I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I wonder what happens to them in, in times of extreme heat or when it's really cold or during storms. Um, you know, I, I, I see homeless encampments, um, you know, appear one day and, and gone the next Um you know, I think the problem with Sacramento is 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 that we don't have enough wraparound um, services for mental health issues and domestic violence cases and, and whatnot. So, like, I think every community, um, my point here is that every community is very different and, and the needs of that community um, are different from, you know, the needs in, in other parts of the state. I really, uh, you know, appreciate kind of everything that you that you brought up and 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 the breadth of it too and i that's a commitment i think that i'm trying to make in my writing in my in this podcast and i'm hoping i'm hoping you'll come back whether we're, there's going to be a conversation about like the you know or two or more about the challenges with uh you know all of our unhoused friends and neighbors and um and and we're also here for conversations about central valley futurism i'm i'm hearing Aegon in my terplan in my head telling me to talk about high-speed rail and uh, and I would also, I think there's a conversation about the future of the Central Valley and density that doesn't actually entirely revolve around the, the rail, but just other ways of creating uh, different types of urbanism. And, and yeah, seeing the Central Valley is really a place of an urban future. If I, I you know, so if anybody wants to have a Central Valley urban futurisms conversation, uh, it may mean it making everything look like Sacramento, actually, because I think the 916 is an underappreciated uh, place to, to live and uh, I don't know how it is to do politics so much. That's all. Have to tell me that. Um, Abram, any uh, any any final thoughts on on where what you know where things need to go uh, back yeah. to Tracy or beyond? I'll say quickly from my my hometown, Tracy, California. Tracy is quite literally the closest city, maybe mountain house, to the East Bay area, and so they face so much crush of folks who move into Tracy looking for a little bit of space. And so 
I think, I mean, they're going to need a real attitude shift just in terms of uh, their housing policy. It, the voters have rejected two times, two distinct efforts at the ballot to ease the construction of affordable housing in the city, once in 2020, once in 2018, and by some pretty uh, eye-catching numbers. And it pains me to see, and it frustrates me to see the resistance to new smart growth in Tracy. And when we're facing the consequences of the Bay Area's resistance to building housing, how are we gonna commit the same sins a few years later? And so, that's going to need a shift and change because there's going to be an increased interest in living in Tracy for the foreseeable future. I mean, the city's population has doubled in my lifetime from 40,000 to over 100,000 people. And so I think that's just a microcosm of what we'll see across the Central Valley. Can we be more forward thinking in how we build housing, how we allow more density, how we build for young families? Otherwise, we're going to keep losing folks. I have a lot of friends from moving to Nevada and Texas. And so... It's a big problem. I'm hoping to see Tracy shift a bit. I've seen a little bit of that shift at the local political level among some council members, but the city as a whole is going to have to relinquish some of their slow growth uh, mannerisms from the past few decades. And hopefully that sort of uh, shift in attitude can be replicated across the state, but across the Central Valley as well, because folks need housing. They need it now. It has to be affordable, and we're not going to get there for an increased production. Totally. I, I, that's great. And I, I hear you in, in, you know, in honor of football season, you know, the Niners and Raiders fans that you see in stadiums all around the country, chances are they live there. It's not that we travel for, you know, sure people travel for games, but think about how many A's fans already live in Vegas, because um, that's where they could afford to buy a house. Uh, Mohammed, any final words for us before we go on to the final question, which is what should the name of this podcast be? Absolutely. Um, I, I think everyone really answered what's going on with um, housing. So I just wanted to bring up just a few more points when it comes to just uh, job creation and opportunity when in the Central Valley. Um, first, back to the pitch of CSU Stockton, like the work for Mayor Tubbs, we saw about 4,000 construction jobs that could be started. Um, Stockton right now has one of the lowest bachelor degree um, rates in the community. It's like 16% of its population. It's because all of the institutions outside of UOP um, are miles and miles away from Stockton and people just go to jobs there. If we build this university, we have 4,000 construction jobs, thousands of more like education focused jobs. You uh, bring this kind of back to a community because one of the largest disinvested areas when it comes to education in the country. It is actually the largest disinvested area. Number two, we need to build nonprofit um, capacity within Stockton. I used to work at Greenlining and now I'm on the board of directors, but the transformative climate communities um, program through the state, the South Stockton project, when it came to that state grant program, the only person that could do the project was Greenlining all the way on Oakland, um, which they've done a great job in, but there isn't that nonprofit in infrastructure there to really like administer programs the state will do to try to help. Uh, third, I'm just gonna talk about transportation. The Link project, needs to happen very soon. Um, people can't keep driving across Altamont Pie every which way. And we can't be experimenting with like hydrogen when it comes to the train system. It needs to be something that's built quick, fast, and accessible. So people don't have to do that commute. It's a dangerous commute. It's a tiring commute. And it's hours long. And we really need to connect regionally, Northern California. And I do like your vision of like 
these uh, Central Valley cities looking more like Sacramento because I fully see that happening. It could be rebuilt, it could be more walkable, it could have more access to transit. Yeah, that's, that's my dream for the Central Valley. It's just for a place of opportunity. Well, thank you all. And thanks, thanks to everybody for, for participating and also for really pushing us, I think, beyond housing. It's super important. I mean, again, that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important that folks from the Central Valley are making housing policy because you can't see housing as somehow separate from water and transportation and all these other systems. Uh, I think, especially when you come there. So you, you almost see it on a day-to-day -day basis. You can see the other parts of the infrastructure. You can see the inequality that the way housing plays a role in a large urban development system. I think that can get lost often in the, in the kind of housing politics in these neighborhoods in the Bay Area that are 100, 100 years old and everybody's fighting to preserve these systems that they can't see and that they don't know where they came from. Um, you know, the, the valley has been built, so much of it, the urban part has been built uh, more recently that you can see it. And I, 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 I think, at least for me, hearing you all talk so intersectionally about all the other systems and about inequality and our unhoused and issues of race and gender and class, I think really push that conversation forward. I'm just really excited that you all are in the positions that you're in. Any final or any other up and coming uh, housers from the 209 that you all want to give a shout out in Sacramento, uh, besides a certain soon to be, well, the, I guess Revis's district does span a couple different valleys, but we'll give him honorary membership in the club. Uh, anybody else that, that needs a shout out or a hello? I'll give a quick shout out. Uh going back to my day job to Senator Susan Eggman. I think a lot of her work. Yeah. Is that, professor Senator Susan Eggman, let's put it. I think everybody who's a professor in the state legislator needs to use the full German title. A hundred percent. And I have to say her transition and work to accepting all these streamlining bills has been awesome. And I can hope it continues out of our Central Valley leaders. Yeah. Well, and if Professor Senator Eggman ever wants to appear on the show to talk about education and housing and all it all comes together uh she would be very welcome i i i'm a fanboy from afar anybody else before we you know before we say goodbye i, I got a really interesting example real quick so like the people working on my neighbor's roof right now are driving in from like yeah. crazy and they put these cones so then they can park their truck because it's a busy street in berkeley and then there's a neighbor that's like oh i can't believe they're taking up the parking using these cones to park their truck on the street. They come every day, right? And it's like, they don't even want to give us a parking spot, even though we're doing all this work for them, redoing the roof, right? So it just shows how much like the Bay Area takes for granted the Central Valley. Yeah. I mean, if you see a work truck parked in a Bay Area neighborhood, chances are the person mm -hmm. who drives that truck and the truck itself are gonna go sleep in the Valley at night. I have a similar um, story when I used to live in Rock Ridge where a very, um, uh, there's road work going on um, and some of the uh, residents of Rockridge uh, were older and angrier than I think the situation warranted. And then thinking like, they're building your critical infrastructure and they were upset because it was a little bit loud during the lunch hour and they're uh, outside on, on a restaurant patio. Yeah. Um, it's just like the, the lack of self-awareness, I think of how, um, how callous we sometimes treat uh, workers who are maintaining our infrastructure, building our homes, um, and and doing everything else that makes this this region run. I think is also really reflective of our housing challenge too, right? Those are probably the same people who are not <laughs> wanting to see new homes built, and so it's just uh, it's just really frustrating to 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 see that and to come from a place where I'm like you know I used to commute three hours a day 
from Stockton to get into the Bay Area. Um, and so I know that that's, this is this is the last thing we should be doing to these people. We should be, um, well, first of all, we should be building them housing so they live here if they want. Second, yeah. we should be thanking them every day. It's so vital. You know, I, I always try to give people tour guide information about how to go out into the Central Valley and explore. And it's a fascinating and interesting place full of lots of wonder. And obviously, you know, lots of things that are really difficult, but I live in Oakland. We have lots of things that are really difficult here. Um, but I think you make a really great point. I mean, I, if you want, the, the people of the Central Valley are in the Bay Area every single day. You don't need to go out to the 209 to see the 209. You just gotta like walk outside and open your eyes. Um, <laughs> and I think that's a part that we, that we forget. Um, yeah, Alex, uh, the last thing um, I wanted to say, your your point about shout outs, I, I feel like I'm on the Oscars, you know, I'm supposed to flatter by this yeah. opportunity. And you, and you can phase me out you with forget? your jingle. Totally. Um, yeah, I have a full list of folks. I, I, I did want to say that, you know, for, for those listeners out there, um, if you have a story, if you're um, a part of the BIPOC community, um, we we want you to be the loudest voice in the room. Like we're not going to have all the answers to unraveling these, um, you know, discriminatory practices. And um, we certainly need more voices like like the people a part of this podcast. You know, we, we need that perspective and that experience to to help us find those answers collectively and together. So, you know, um, we need more women at the table. We need more um, of people of color. So, you know, all jokes aside, I, I think that's an important piece that I, I'd like to highlight from my perspective. Well, I can't thank you all enough for being on the show. Um, I think you really previewed so many of the issues we will cover this year and pushed me to think about issues like density and the future of the San Joaquin Valley in new ways. Um, it's truly been an honor and a pleasure. Uh, thanks to Muhammad Alamaldin and David Garcia from the Turner Center, uh, to Melino Morelos from Greenlining Institute, and to Abraham Diaz from the Nonprofit Housing Association of Northern California. Uh, shout outs to their hometowns of Stockton, Tracy, and Los Banos. Uh, to my producer, who is also from Tracy, uh, to all the folks in the 209 working to improve housing communities and the future of so many Californias. Thank you again, and we'll see you on a future episode. Thank you.